Good morning, and welcome to each one. It's good to have you here and uh, be able to share this time with you. I Before I get into the message, I just uh, I thought about getting up during sharing time, but I thought, well, I'll just wait till I come here. Just give a little report on our time last weekend visiting Daedry, and then, of course, seeing Layton there. And being able to spend some time with him Saturday night and and uh, quite a bit of the day on Sunday. And it was just really good. Uh, I think they're both doing well. And uh, I think Paul and Trish were there last weekend or last week. And uh, we met each other on the road, actually. Passed each other just a little bit west of St. Louis. And um, so it was good. Uh, what I want to say is uh, just I say it for the edification of the body. And for the encouragement of the parents and the grandparents. But uh, I was just really blessed. Maybe even the encouragement of the pastors and, and the rest of you who have had influence. Youth leaders and so on. But uh, I, I talked to three of the four admin men. The administrative men uh, there at Hillcrest. And uh, I just want to pass along what some of them said. And... Uh, they were both uh, just gave um, encouraging words, uh, having Dage and, and Leighton there. Uh, but uh, what was really encouraging to me was uh, in speaking to Phil Yoder, who's the uh, administ not the administrator, what's his title? Um, not sure what the title, director. His name is, his title is director. And he just, just, gave the uh, encouragement that, you know, Leighton is a great, a great asset to the team there. And he just uh, really complimented him and, um, and just talked about how well he's liked and how well he fits. And Dage also has told us right that everybody likes Leighton. And uh, I wonder why. Um, yeah. But the, the encouraging, the other encouraging thing was uh, uh, Friday night talking to Ben, um, uh, Reed Secker, and he's the uh, he's the uh, unit leader, and he's probably the, the the face to most of the youth most of the time. He's the one that schedules them and 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 has a lot of contact with them. Uh, ben is the son of Randall Reed Secker, pastor over at, at Pleasant Grove, and he's the youth uh, the unit leader there. And he said, you know, Layden, he's a great man. He said, uh, you know, he said, we've got some quirky rules here at Hillcrest. Uh, the unit leader said that. He said, you know, you've got to have it for just because of the, the, uh, just the way it is, you know, with that many youth. you just got to have some things that you put in place. And he said, some of the, some of the, 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 the men, the youth, uh, the, the young folks uh, were sort of complaining about it and talking about it. And he said, Leighton just stepped up to the plate. He says, you know what, guys? He said, you signed up for this when you came. You knew what you were getting into. Do it. And I was like, yes. So I just give this as an encouragement. So I was, I was blessed by that. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. And part of the inspiration for this message came from uh, our time at Hillcrest last Sunday. The Sunday school was on chapter 7 of Matthew. And of course, as big and as long as chapter 7 is, you can really not do a lot of justice 
for a whole book of Matthew 7, or a full, whole chapter of Matthew 7 in one Sunday school lesson. But we touched on verse, uh, verse 6, I believe it is. And uh, I, I wasn't satisfied with the way that it was left. Now, I'm not saying anything negative about the teacher or anything like that. I mean, he, he did well. But I just thought that there was more that should have been talked about. And uh, being the guest, I just kept quiet. So, yeah, surprise, surprise, right? But I would like to talk about this morning and uh, just dialogue a little bit about that. I've entitled the message, Discerning Your Responses. And the, the verse that we have there in verse 6 says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. This passage has no parallel passage or scripture elsewhere in the New Testament. So the question that I come to you with, is this a standalone passage? Or is this given within a context? It sort of seems like it's just a standalone. Who all thinks that it's a standalone passage of scripture? One verse. Maybe I'm wrong. Who all thinks it's in a context? And be careful because if you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you what the context is. Now nobody's going to do it. Who all thinks it's in the context? Who all doesn't know? Oh, man, okay, I got my work cut out this morning. Well, it's very important, I think, that we understand whether a passage is given in a context or whether it is standalone. You know the dangers of forming doctrine with Scripture when it is pulled out of context. All Scripture must agree with what? Scripture. All scripture must agree with scripture. The first hint of heretical teaching is if it disagrees with another passage of scripture in the, in the Bible. So that's the first hint. And uh, I, 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 I've, heard, I've heard passages of scripture that are taken out of context. I'm sure I've done it in the past already. But it really, it really um, concerns me when I hear passages of scripture taken out of context. And I'll give you a couple of illustrations how this has happened already. I've taken the passage of scripture in, in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus has talked about um, uh, don't lay up anything for yourselves where raw moss and rust corrupts and where thieves can break through and steal. And then a couple of verses later he says, hey, don't, don't worry about things for tomorrow. For Tomorrow's going to take care of itself. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, uh, that kind of where you're going to live. Uh, it's going to take care of itself. And so I've just used that passage of Scripture, and I've asked the question already, is, is it biblical to have a 401K? Or is it biblical to have a retirement account? And I'm not here to say whether it is or isn't. That's not the point of, of what I'm asking here. But you know one of the first responses, passages of Scripture that have been given back to me when I've asked that question? Guess which one? 
Not that one, but the one back in Timothy chapter 5. In Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those who are of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than in... And they say that in defense of a retirement account. It has nothing to do with that kind of, it is so taken out of context. What is the context of that passage of scripture? And I've asked the people that have used that verse, I've said, what's the context of that verse? And most of them don't know. What's the context of First uh, Timothy 5 verse 8? Do you know? Uh, that one in particular is talking about how we take care of widows. How we take care of widows. And who's responsible to take care of widows? Who's responsible to take care of widows? Families first. Children is specifically mentioned. Children and grandchildren are to take care of widows. If they are not capable or if they don't have anyone like that, then whose responsibility does it become? The churches, thank you. So when you take that to defend your retirement account, my ear turns off because it's out of context. Another scripture that I've heard people take out of context already is uh, when, and it just really makes me cringe when I hear this one, and I've heard it numerous times. When there are disagreements in the body of Christ, particularly if there's a church that is having difficulty and they're having disagreements and, and it just does not seem to be able to be resolved, I've heard of pastors coming in to a setting like that, hearing the, 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 the church body out, and then concluding with the advice, and it's terrible advice according to what, what I understand scripture, they reach back into Acts chapter 14 in the account where Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. And it seemed to have an, a, 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 a disagreement that they just couldn't resolve. And so they say, hey, you know, maybe the best thing for you to do is just to part ways. That's what Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas did. Folks, that's, that's terrible advice. That passage of scripture is not in there to teach us how to resolve differences. It's there to teach us what we shouldn't do. And then to, to match scripture with scripture. Does Acts 14, does that correlate with Romans 14? No. What does Romans 14 say? The weaker brother that's that, that, that cannot, cannot receive certain things, the, who's supposed to take care of the weaker brother? The more mature one. And so we, it's not teaching us how to part ways if we can't. Irreconcilable differences. Have you ever heard that term? Irreconcilable. Is there anything like that in Jesus Christ? It shouldn't be. There shouldn't be. So it is very important that we do not take Scripture out of context. So... I say all that to say that Jesus, at first as I began to study this, I was questioning whether this was a standalone passage of scripture. It just didn't quite seem to fit 
with what was given before and what was given after in Matthew 7. But as I begin to study it more and more, I, I, I begin to understand that it's actually given in the context of the surrounding verses. And I'd like to explain that a little bit. Jesus, in, in verse 1 through 5 in, in seven, chapter 7 there, has just finished instructing us how to be careful not to cast judgment on others lest we be judged. Judge not, lest you be judged. How you judged is how you will be judged. Do heart surgery on yourself before you try to do surgery on somebody else. That's in essence what Jesus was saying. And then he comes along and tempers his admonition of judgment and shows us the difference between judgment and discernment. See, one of the first things that a guilty person does when he knows he is doing wrong and you approach them about it, what's the first passage of scripture that they pull out? Judge not lest you be judged. And so as Christians, we maybe tend to err on the side of just not approaching anyone about anything. But Jesus is balancing this. He's balancing it. He's not saying that you don't talk to another person. He's teaching us how to use discernment when we talk to someone or if we should talk to someone or not. Jesus, this is a follow-up uh, uh, theme of understanding the difference between discernment and judgment. And so this particular imperative that Jesus gave is one that takes prudence and discretion to know how and when to apply this command. And we'd like to talk about that this morning. I'd like for you to be equipped to know when to talk, when not to talk, how to respond, how not to respond in certain situations. Most of us know Brother Nate Nisley, and I've just admired his ability to be able to talk to individuals who are defiant against God. But it's not in the case of an argument. You know, just to win the argument doesn't mean you've won the war. But if we can give a, an argument or if we can give a, a statement so that it causes the other person to back up and think through what has just been said, hey, you've made progress. And so I think that's what we want to look at this morning. So Jesus comes along and he uses some terms that seem quite harsh and uncharacteristic to him in nature. He, he uses words like dog and swine uh, in reference to people. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, uh, nor cast your pearl before swine. And something that we need to understand is that we're dealing with a cultural term here that in many ways is irrelevant to us. Because today, 
in our culture, many of us would say that what that that a dog is man's best what <laughs> best friend. And uh, so when we come into something like this, why we understand that hey, we're out of culture with what and when this was given. Now the hog that is in there probably seems a little bit out of character as well in our culture. However, I have a co-worker that, has, uh, that is a salesperson and he was just saying that, that he had come from a, from a client. And by the way, this is an upscale client. And we're not talking about dirty and down and out and, and, and needy. We're talking about an upscale client who has a pig for a pet. In fact, just recently, they've acquired the third one in their home. And the other day, when he went out to talk to them and to visit them, he asked, I forget the pig's name, but he asked them, uh, where such an Arnold, I'm going to call him Arnold, where Arnold's at? Oh, he's back in the bedroom under the covers. It's like, you seriously have got to be kidding me. This also puts a new uh, twist to a Sunday afternoon nap. so in many ways to us the term pig and dog really does not grab us probably the way it did the Jewish people when they heard it Uh, we probably our family probably has a little bit of an idea when we talk about a dog uh, the scum of a dog and that is our experiences on the northern reserves where, uh, where, you know what, the, those dogs were so pitiful. No one took care of them. Uh, Jasons know what we're talking about. Uh, they, they, were, they were mean. They were vicious. I saw more dog fights in my 14 years up there than any other time in my life. And they're just, they're, they, we call them Heinz 57. That's the breed we call them. They're Heinz 57. They're, they're everything. I mean, there's, it's terrible. So when I thought about that, I thought, yeah, I can see why. That's probably the way it was in Jesus' day when he talked about dogs. And of course, to a Jewish person, they would not think of eating pork or, or anything like that. I'm told by one source, and maybe Daryl can confirm this. I'm not sure if it's accurate or not. I read by one source that 40% of the corn that is raised in the United States goes to fatten hogs. I don't know if that's true or not, but if that's the case, hey, we can't relate to this, to this, to these terms, because uh, it sounds like the uh, people in the states eat a lot of pork. Suffice it to say that the picture of dogs and swine is a is a symbolic picture of those with a very high negative volition toward the gospel or the things that we value that are Christ-centered. They are representative of those who would would, uh, uh, ridicule, reject, and would blaspheme the gospel. And I'd like to turn to uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2 and uh, just give a little bit of reference to that. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. And if you, if you read the, the book of Peter, second chapter especially, we see that, that, that Peter is talking about 
in the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about destructive doctrines that are out there floating around. And then he talks about the doom of false teachers. And then he talks about the depravity of false teachers. And he wraps up that chapter talking about the deception of false teachers. And I want to just focus in on that last portion in that chapter starting in verse 18 where it says, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allow through their lust, boy, I'm having a hard time, through the lust of the flesh, through, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in air, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage and he's talking about individuals who are causing others to leave the faith they're promising them liberty and not realizing that they themselves are enslaved to sin last part there for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the lord and savior jesus christ they are again entangled in them and overcome the latter is worse for them than the beginning. So he's saying, he's saying that those who have once tasted of the heavenly things and then leave that are in worse condition than if they would have never followed Christ to begin with. Verse 21, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it but it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his vomit, and a sow, having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. So Peter is using these same terms to talk about people who are heretics, false teachers, people who are causing others to fall away from God and from the truth. So bear that in mind as we go through this message this morning. And possibly we can understand why it is, uh, it, 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 these are terms that were used to expose individuals. And maybe just to put it in my own words, let's just reread it and I just put my own words in there. Do not give what is holy to bitter individuals, nor cast your pearls before scorners lest they trample what is valued under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. So somewhere in this whole instruction, we're called to use discernment. He's not saying, he's not saying that we should not give the gospel to people. See, that would not correlate with scripture, other scripture. We know the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we know that if we go, there are going to be people that reject the gospel. He's not talking about those individuals. He's talking, I believe, about individuals who are bitter towards God and bitter towards the gospel. And most of those individuals who are bitter have at one point been exposed to the gospel possibly grown up in church, maybe even been part of a church, possibly the father has been a pastor or teacher in some ways, 
and for whatever reason have allowed Satan to plant that bitterness in their heart, and those are some of the most scornful, some of the most bitter individuals you can ever find. Be careful how you approach them. Abraham Lincoln said, "'Tis better to be silent and to be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt." A Christian has found a treasure in Jesus Christ that can be likened to a pearl. What we value in Jesus Christ can be likened to a pearl. And if I were to own a pearl, you can rest assured I would not put it in my pocket every day and carry it around with my keys or my other change or the other things that I keep in my pocket because I might get it out and it might drop and it might fall into the ground and I might not even find out about it. What am I going to do with that pearl? I'm going to put it in a place where I know it is kept safe and where it's not going to get lost. I think the same comparison can be made to a Christian sharing the pearl of Jesus Christ with others who do not value the same or do, who do not have the same values. I don't know if any one of you heard or not what happened this past week. But I didn't hear it directly. I heard it secondhand. Well, there is a case in PA of an Amish man who went to buy a gun. And he was denied the purchase of a gun because he did not have a photo ID. He went to a senator, he appealed to a senator, the senator went to the DNR, and they appealed to the DNR, and the DNR came back and says, nope, law's law, got to have a photo ID, that's the end of discussion. The man turned around, and he is now suing the government for violation of his rights to own a gun to defend his family and secondly, to not be able to, uh, to, to violate his, his conviction of not taking a photo. Now, it seems absurd. And we all know, anyone that knows the history of Amish people know that that is, that is uncharacteristic of who they are. But it has made national radio. And do you understand what kind of scorn and contempt that's going to cause? That, that just feeds people that are already bitter toward the gospel. That kind of thing. And so it behooves us as Christians to live in such a way to that, that, we, that we don't live a double standard of who we are. Um, that has just given ammunition to some people and possibly affects many people down the road. We don't know how far that will take us. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. 
Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Now, who are these bitter individuals? Who are these, and I'm going to use the term fool just because of proverb using them, using it in that way. Uh, who are these individuals? The Bible talks about, and here's where languages does injustice. Uh, there's a classic case here that I'll just present to you. There are five different types of fools that the scripture talks about. They are all rendered as fools in the English language. So we don't realize that there's five different types of fools. But if you look at the Hebrew in them, in, in, in the book of Proverbs, you will notice that there are five different types of individuals. And I want to break that down for you this morning. Five different types of fools. There is, and, and it doesn't use these terms necessarily, but I've, I've, I've dubbed them this way. There's the simple fool. It does talk about the simple. There's the silly fool. There is the sensual fool. And then there's the scorning fool, and there is the steadfast fool. And I want to break these down, and, and in this way, trying to help us understand the different types of people that we may be dealing with. Let's go to the first one, the simple fool. The simple fool is, the, the, the Hebrew word is pethy, pethy. And we find this found repeatedly in the scriptures. A simple fool is simple because he doesn't know better. He lacks understanding. It is like the child that sits on the back of a high chair and does not realize that it is dangerous for him to do so. So we teach the child that he, may, he or she may not sit on the back of the high chair, even though they can possibly comprehend that gravity is stronger than the seat of their pants and that a little tip may push them over. So we teach them, no, 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 you may not sit on the back of the high chair, you must sit on the seat. We teach the simple fool and hopefully he will respond positively. We do, in, we do, we do uh, communicate with the simple fool. Because there is hope for a simple fool. He lacks understanding. According to scripture, and these are taken from the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, so you may just want to grab the, the verses if, in case you want to go back later on. He enjoys simple-mindedness is what it says. He enjoys simple-mindedness. The simple fool is void of understanding, according to 7, verse 7. The simple fool is extremely curious. 9 verse 4 and 5. The simple fool believes every word he hears. And so there's, there's actually hope for the simple fool if he, gives, if he receives positive instruction. There is hope for the simple fool. He inherits folly according to chapter 14 verse 13. Uh, he leans he learns when scorners are punished. And when we see this in chapter 19, verse 25, that when the scorner is punished, the simple learn by that. So when he sees another person being punished, 
for what he does. He learns by that. He does not foresee evil, verse uh, 3 of chapter 22. So this class or this level of foolishness is not, I don't think, the level that Jesus was talking about. Okay? We, we interact with this, with this kind of person because there is hope for him. The next one is the silly fool. And the word is evil. Evil, I believe it is. He is silly because he is willing to endure certain levels of consequence in order to have his own way. Now, there needs to be quick and swift correction for this person in order for him not to progress to the next level. And by the way, I was going to mention at the beginning, and I failed to do so, but as we look at these different levels of foolishness, they are progressive in nature. The simple fool will, will, will become a silly fool if he's, not, if he's not corrected. And a silly fool will become a sensual fool and so on. It's progressive in nature. So in this level, there needs to be swift correction for, in order for him not to progress to the third level of foolishness. A six-year-old sitting on the back of the chair just because he wants to, even though he has been told repeatedly that he should not sit on the back of the high chair, needs to be disciplined. If you don't, he's going to progress to the next level. Or she, he or she. Surely girls wouldn't do that, right? Okay. The silly fool is found quite a few times in the book of Proverbs. And by the way, I haven't even listed all of them. In chapter 1, verse 7, he despises wisdom and instruction. So, the silly fool is not, does not easily receive instruction. That's why there needs to be correction, discipline. He decides to follow strange women, 722. He falls into mischief, 10 verse 3. He speaks without knowledge, 10 verse 14. He troubles his own family, 11:29. He is right in his own eyes. A silly fool is right in his own eyes, 12 verse 15. He appears to be wise when he speaks. The fact is, you can easily back these kinds of people into a corner by laying truth out before them and going on principle. He meddles in other people's business, 20 verse 3, and he is an angry person, 27 verse 3. And so... I think even at this level, I don't think is the level that Jesus was talking about. But from here forward, I think it causes us to use discretion when we bump into the next levels of individuals. The sensual fool, kesio. The sensual fool, the description that the Bible gives about this person is one who is bent for making wrong choices. One who is bent for making wrong choices. This person does not have the mental, a, a mental deficiency. It's not that he can't comprehend what is wrong, but rather he refuses 
the wisdom of God and is arrogantly set on doing that which is right in his own eyes. See, the simple fool just doesn't know. He doesn't have the capacity to understand. The sensual fool understands, but he refuses and arrogantly resists the truth. Most often it is with this person that we begin to uh, refrain from casting our pearls before the swine. It's at this level that I think Jesus is talking about. He is dangerous. Uh, he is damaged by prostitution. He hides hatred with lies. He turns mischief into a sport. He proclaims foolishness. His folly is deceit. He is overconfident in doing well or doing evil. He feeds on foolishness. He despises his mother. He overlooks obvious lessons. He brings grief to his parents. He is contentious. Contentions, I think I have that wrong there. Contentious is what I wanted. He squanders his resources. He despises those who speak wisdom and he utters all his mind. I think here's where we need to use discretion when we bump into a person like this. Now there are ways, and we want to talk about that after I go through this, ways that we can counter some of these individuals. The fourth one is the scorning fool. The scorning fool uh, communicates the disdain and the contempt that he has in his heart for the way of righteousness. He's vocal about it, uh, and he does not mind telling people about it. I recall years ago, back in 97, I think it was, when we were back on sabbatical, I was helping my brother, and, um, and we were on a job up in Michigan somewhere, and we bumped into a scorning, what I would classify as a scorning fool. That person hated anything to do with righteousness. Um, and I won't go into that, but uh, I, I still remember I, I still remember him. The scorning fool has not only rejected truth, but he has also embraced that which is an abomination to God. And so we can see the progression in these different levels of, of, of foolery. He delights in scorning, 122. He uh, damages the reputation of reprovers. He does not listen to uh, verbal rebukes. He is pseudo-intelligent. It's the wisdom that is not from above. James distinguishes between the wisdom that is from above and the wisdom of this world. And there's a big difference. He is full of wrath and he initiates contention and strife. That is the scorning fool. And uh, so we see the different levels. And then the last one is the steadfast fool. The steadfast fool is a person who is morally wicked and despises holiness. He is self-confident and close-minded. Not only is he totally committed to being his own God, 
and gratifying his lower nature, but he has also dedicated his life to draw as many others as he can to follow his evil ways. So not only is he content to live that life for himself, he's also out to try to get as many to follow him as is possible, which I would say follows the description of Second Peter chapter 2. The steadfast fool, he looks for a platform from which to speak. He destroys his parents' joys. He exalts himself in pride, and he says in his heart, according to Psalms, that there is no God. The person that says that back in Psalms is the same Hebrew word as is used for the steadfast fool. Well, how do we communicate with these kinds of people? What do we do? Do we just did you, do we just ignore them? Do we just stay away from them? Do we avoid them? How do we communicate with them? I think we have to understand that there are four types of questions that these individuals oftentimes ask. And I love the way that Jesus, and I'm going to use scripture, I'm going to show you from scripture how Jesus responded to these different kinds of individuals. In these three last three levels of foolery, most of the times there are four different types of questions that these individuals ask. The first one that we want to look at is the rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is one to which no answer is expected or to which only one answer may be given. When a fool asks a rhetorical question, he is not seeking knowledge, but he's trying to add emphasis to his own ideas. When a wise man uses a rhetorical question, he forces the listener to acknowledge the truth. So one of the best ways to respond to a fool who asks a rhetorical question is to answer him with a wise rhetorical question. I love the way that Jesus did this. And I think if we do it in this way, we do not cast our pearls before the swine. Let's look at the example that we find in Matthew chapter 12, verse 10 and uh, 14. It's the account where Jesus is, uh, is in the midst there and the, and the people, uh, the, the man with the withered hand comes up to him and, is, and, and they are, uh, let's see, verse 14. Tw- um, I'm over the wrong chapter. So uh, when he departed... Uh, from there, he went to the synagogue, it says in verse 9. Verse 10, it says, And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then it says that they might accuse him. Okay? So they were asking him a question, but it was a rhetorical question. Because he already knew the answer to it. And they did it with the intent of trying to accuse Jesus to back him into a corner. Look at the way that Jesus responded. I love the way he responded to them. He said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if he falls into the pit on the Sabbath, 
will you not lay hold of it and pull it out or lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. (laughs) And he just shut them right up. They had nothing to say. They walked away from him. So he answered them with another question. Is it lawful? I mean, which one of you? And, they, and he used sheep because in their culture, again, sheep was something that, that was very fondly, uh, they were very fondly attracted to the sheep. It was oftentimes a family pet, and many of them were shepherds, and so they understood the language of sheep, probably in a way that we don't. Which one of you has a sheep? Which one of you has a little puppy? And the puppy falls into a bowl of water, bucket of water but it's the Sabbath, so you're just going to let him drown. No, we wouldn't do that. We know we wouldn't do that. We'd lift him out, and they were silenced. They had nothing. So it takes the wisdom of God to answer someone that asks a question that they know already in their heart what it is. Respond with a better question, another rhetorical question. There's a second one, a question, a type of question And that is an argumentative uh, question. An argumentative question is one that stirs up debate and controversy over conflicting points of view. It is a question that that is divisive uh, in nature and it forces the listener to take sides. Okay? How should we answer someone like that? When an argumentative question is asked, defer the question with a better question. Look at how Jesus did this. I love this story. And I just realized... I thought I had left my last page of notes at home. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, and it's the case where Jesus is brought before the, uh, the, uh, the high priest. And um, verse 23, let's see here. <clears throat> now when he came to the temple... The chief uh, priest and the elders of the people confronted him. See, it's confrontation. It's not truly seeking an answer, but it was. It's. It's. It is. Uh, uh, it is um, conflicting in nature, divisive in nature. They confronted him as he was teaching and said. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Now, depending, if Jesus would have said, if Jesus would have said, hey, my authority came from God, why, they would have nailed him with blasphemy. They would have, they would have, they would have just <laughs> obliterated him because of his, his response. Well, what did he say? Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, if, which if you tell me, 
I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where was it from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And all of a sudden the people were, were, were silenced. They said, okay, if we say he was from God, then why didn't we listen to him? If we say he's from men, hey, the people, they, people saw John as a prophet and we didn't listen to him and they were stunned to silence. I love the way Jesus handled that situation. He brought them to their, their core needs without casting his, the, the pearls before them and having them trample on them. They, they, were, they were silenced by his question. Great way to respond. So when someone asks you an argumentative question, think through the process before you respond to them. And oftentimes asking a, a question back to them that will force them to think through what they have just asked will silence them and cause them to think. The third one that we see uh, when it comes to, by the way, I failed to uh, put these up here, but we already read that. The third one is a deceptive question. A deceptive question is a cunning question designed to ensnare the one who answers it. Have you ever heard this question? Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift up? That's, that's a deceptive question. When a deceptive question is asked, respond with a convicting question, one that is based on principle rather than application. We see Jesus doing this. Twice we see this happening. Matthew 22. Uh, again, it was during his, it was right at the end, just prior to his, his uh, death there. And, uh, and in chapter 22, verse 16, the Pharisees, uh, went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Verse 15, it says that. And in verse 16, it says, And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you, are a, that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us therefore. So they first schmoozed him up a little bit, recognized that he was a person that was, that was truth. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And again, it was an ensnaring question. He knew that if he would say that we should not pay taxes, even though they hated the Romans, he would be at the mercy of the Romans. If he said that we should pay taxes, then when they would ask him, well, why aren't you doing it? Because they already had accused him of, of not paying taxes previously. What did Jesus do? He said, well, he said, bring me a piece of coin. And he asked him, whose inscription is on this coin? They said, well, it's Caesar. Well, he said, give to Caesar. What is Caesar? And the things that are God's give to God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. He silenced them with his response. And in a, a, a deceptive question needs, needs a response that will bring conviction upon the one who asked the original question. 
Another example of this is in John chapter 8, when they brought the woman uh, who was caught in the act of adultery. And according to, the, in, according to the, the Old Testament, the law, she should have been stoned. And so they said, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, the very act. Moses' law commanded us that she should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. And what did Jesus say? He brought it back to a principle. And he said, hey, whoever is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone. And he bent over and started writing on the ground again. Pretty soon he looked up and there was no one around anymore. They were so convicted in their hearts, they knew that no one was guiltless. And they walked away. They were silenced. He spoke conviction to their heart without casting pearls before them. They did not, they were not able to dispute what he had to say. The last one are the insincere questions. An insincere question is one that does not express the genuine feeling of the questioner. It is a question that is pretended and cannot be taken at face value. When an insincere question is asked, respond with a sincere question or statement which will often trigger the guilt and shame that is already in their heart. So when somebody asks you, prove to me that there's a God. Well, if you try to prove then that there's a God, you're going to cast the pearls before the swine. How did Jesus do it? Well, go to John chapter 18. And uh, in this case, he was again, he was uh, brought to the high priest. He was questioned. Uh, he was, this was during the time of the, the uh, betrayal. Peter had just denied him. And he was brought to the high priest. In verse 19, and it says, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciple and his doctrine. He asked him about his disciples and his doctrine. And then Jesus answered and said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers stood by and struck Jesus with the palm and said, do you answer the high priest in that way? And on and on. Jesus the, the, just the response, just the response of slapping him on the cheek indicates the guilt that was in, in those people's hearts. And uh, Jesus was just very forthright and honest and open with them. And uh, it wasn't that the high priest truly wanted to know his doctrine. He already knew what it was. That's why they had disputes with him all the time that he was on the earth. But he, re, he just responded with, with truth back to him. Well, I trust this has been helpful for you. Uh, to know what that passage in, in Matthew 7, verse 6 means. And it's not that we do not talk to these individuals. To use wisdom and discretion and discernment how we respond to these individuals. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to have Jay come up and close however he wishes. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and goodness, your love and mercy to us. Thank you for being here this morning. Lord, as you have given us instruction in uh, the passage, the text that we read this morning, I would just pray that we would be able to apply it with wisdom and understanding. 
And uh, as, as we bump into different kinds of individuals who are bitter and who scorn the things that we value, Lord, give us wisdom to know how to respond to them. Guide and keep us and direct us. In your name we pray. Amen.